The scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew. I'll be reading from the 24th chapter, beginning in verse 36 through 44. This from the Common English Bible. But nobody knows when that day or hour will come, not the heavenly angels and not the Son. Only the Father knows, as it was in the time of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the human one. In those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. They didn't know what was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. The coming of the human one will be like that. At that time, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, stay alert. You don't know what day the Lord is coming, but you understand that if the head of the house knew at what time the thief would come, he would keep alert and would not allow the thief to break into his house. Therefore, you also should be prepared because the human one will come at a time you do not know. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. In case someone hasn't already done so, let me be the very first, perhaps, to wish you a very happy new year. What? That's right, Christians. Today is the first day of the year, according to the Christian calendar. And if you're sitting there and thinking, well, why don't they just sync that up a little bit with January 1 so it's all less confusing? Do not worry, you're not alone. And for that matter, you're doing exactly what our spiritual ancestors wanted you to do. That is, to wrestle with the fact that Christians historically have taken our marching orders from a different rhythm, a different drumbeat even a different calendar. We trace this practice all the way back to the roots of our Jewish spiritual ancestors, although it also appears that Babylonians and Egyptians had calendars which coupled major theological themes with spiritual practices on a calendar. And the point of all of this is to make marking and passing the time count for something besides just paying our bills and existing and to give life and to give shape and to give rhythm and to give a deeper sense of purpose and meaning to our lives. So my dear friends, before you rush straight in and say Merry Christmas, allow me to welcome you to the new year on the church calendar. It's the weird and wonderful season of Advent. And during Advent, Christians do these things. We prepare for, we, we watch for, we expect, and we do some spiritual rearranging all in order to notice what the word Advent means, the coming of Jesus. And we watch for this coming of Jesus in history, in mystery, and in majesty. And Advent, in its current shape, has evolved to emphasize the following themes of each of the four weeks that precede Christmas. Hope, peace, love, and joy. And today, our theological theme, as we heard a bit earlier in the service, is hope. So may I ask you a question on this first day of this new year? What 
exactly are you hoping for? What are you hoping for? Psychologists tell us that change and surprise can actually add spice to our lives, but they also point out that we tend to thrive when we have a, a sense of knowing what to expect. For example, animals in a laboratory do well when they know that they will be rewarded for pushing lever A and punished for pushing lever B. They will avoid lever B and concentrate on lever A, but when we take the predictability out of the equation, when we make the rewards and punishments random, the animals in a laboratory soon become fearful and refuse to approach either lever, and eventually they refuse to move at all. They become so frozen. Now, fortunately, we're not animals trapped in a laboratory, and we humans can actually handle a certain amount of randomness, a certain amount of surprise in our lives. In fact, we tend to do better to live more fully and more authentically when there is some level of unpredictability and even spontaneity to our days. The key then to enjoying the pleasant surprises and mitigating the unpleasant surprises is to simply be ready for both as best as we can. And as oxymoronic as it sounds, you have to be prepared for surprises and even look for them. It seems really weird to say, hope for surprises, doesn't it? And that's why I think ad the Advent kind of hope is a bit more disciplined. Advent hope is a bit more intentional. Advent hope is a bit more defined than just plain old, generic, sentimental hope. The kind of hope we're after for Advent is very much a discipline. It's all wrapped up in our expectations. So let me ask you the question I asked earlier another way. What are you spending your time and energy expecting these days? Now enters this text we read from Matthew's Gospel, and thank goodness it only shows up every three years in the suggested text for this Sunday of the church year. I mean, here we are, Advent number one, and I have managed to avoid preaching this text most years by jumping over to the book of Isaiah because it's much happier. It does, this Matthew text doesn't preach easily, and apocalyptic literature like the, what we just read from Matthew's gospel it doesn't translate well into our modern culture or sell books. And I've often, well, the wrong kind of books, I guess it sells, but I've often wondered what those who organized this book we call the Revised Common Lectionary were thinking by putting this text in the gospel first. I mean, what would the conversation go like? I wondered, okay, y'all, we, what we should really, what should we put first to really kick Advent off with a bang the right way for this church, folks? Oh, I know, let's scare the hell out of them all. <coughs> let's start off Advent with Matthew's version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, that's it. Now, unfortunately, this text is laden with problems theologically and challenges of translating what the folks who would have been listening to this back then heard and what we hear simply because of the centuries between us. But most of these challenges and problems are not because of the text itself. But rather, are you listening? From a horrendous misinterpretation of this text that has been handed down to us, not for a long time from our spiritual ancestors, but from around 1830. To borrow a line from the great theologian Cher, 
If I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that hurt you. Now, those of us who read this text and are thinking, uh-oh, rapture. We must realize this whole notion of the faithful ones being beamed up or taken away or raptured, if you will, was not around at all until the late 1700s in Christian thinking, and it really wasn't popularized until the 1830s when a man named John Nelson Darby made it a prominent view, this idea of a rapture among fundamentalists and evangelical Christians. And then, unfortunately, the concept made its way into the fabric and culture of Christianity on a wider scale when it was, it was entered into the pages of some of the scholars who worked on this thing called the Schofield Reference Bible and printed in 1917. And so the text of these kinds of scriptures themselves, they were from the King James Version of the Bible, but the study notes, look out for the study notes, folks. And the suggested cross-references for searching related scriptures were all steeped in the relatively new idea that faithful Christians, truly faithful Christians, would all be magically beamed up to heaven before Jesus would return and things got really difficult for those followers of his. Now, the text we read from Matthew's gospel was one of those rapture-promoting dispensationalist favorites. The only problem... They didn't actually read the text very closely because if they had, it would have thrown cold water on the whole thing. Now listen to verse 37 through 39 again. As it was in the time of Noah. Who'd I say? Noah. So it will be with the coming of the human one. That's Jesus. In those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark. They didn't know what was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. The coming of the human one will be like that. Now, file that in your brain cell for just a moment. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the story of Noah and the ark? Do you? Now, I hate to use these terms, but for the sake of time, bear with me. Was it the good guys or was it the bad guys who got to stick around after the flood? Huh? Okay, it was the good guys. Now, I mean, it was the ones who were paying attention to the gravity of their situation. It was the ones who were tuned in, the ones who were expecting a flood, the ones with their eyes on what was really happening in the world around them that survived the flood. Now, by the way, both the Matthew text and the story of Noah's Ark are ridden with theological problems, but that's not the point. The reason I believe Jesus is drawing on the example of Noah's story is to say that it was the ones who were paying attention. It was the ones who were expecting change. It was the ones who had their eyes adjusted to reality and who worked to prepare for the change who survived it. Now, only this time it will not be death the next time this happens. You see, Jesus came and his life teaching, okay? You get extra credit. What was the main theme of, if you had to sum up Jesus' teaching in three words that, that are a phrase? It starts with king and ends with God. King of God. Kingdom of God. I'm filling in the blanks for it. That was his life teaching. Well, in the kingdom of God, when it comes fully as a present reality, 
It won't be hell on earth. It won't be a flood. This time, heaven will be breaking into the mundane, the ordinary, the everyday, the ho-hum, the grind. This time, something wonderful is just on the horizon. This time, something extraordinarily and incredibly life-giving is going to break into history, and only the ones with their eyes trained to see what's really going on in this world will even know it's happening. The others, well, they'll be in danger of being taken away or washed away or carried away. Now we have to remember that Jesus was speaking here to a group of people who were living in poverty. These were his people, and they barely had enough to buy food with or clothe themselves. And so most were behind completely or were evading paying taxes at all, assessed to them by the Roman government who had occupied their homeland and was basically extracting every penny they could from every single Jewish citizen and organization. And at any given moment, the people who were listening to this teaching they were deathly afraid that a Roman soldier would break into their little group and haul any number of them away for the taxes they owed. And guess what? The soldier would have had every legal right to snatch them away under Roman law, and their life would be forever changed. They would be snatched up, one might say. Are you ready? In the twinkling of an eye. No one would know it was coming. They would be gone, but not to heaven. They'd be in jail. It might as well be hell, because life as they knew it would certainly be over and done with, and locked in a cell, separated from their family. Does that sound familiar, if you've been watching the news? Their lives would be shattered completely, because they would be separated from the ones they loved and from their lives as they had known it. Here's a side note. We don't have time for this sermon, but we would do well to remind ourselves here that simply because something is legal does not also mean it is morally acceptable. And so it was in the sense of complete unrest and worry that Matthew penned these words and attributed them to Jesus in our text. What did hope look like to them? Well, for starters that Rome would leave them alone, that they would get to live their lives with their loved ones, that they would get to do the ordinary, the mundane stuff like eat and drink and go to those glad celebrations when someone in their family would get married, just like in the time of Noah, that they would avoid imprisonment and getting separated from their families and hauled away unexpectedly. This was their reality. This was the world in which they lived. But Jesus was saying, there's something more than all of that, than all of this. And there it is, my friends. There is something more than what meets the eye this Advent and this is our hope. But what is it? How will we know when hope comes into plain sight? I'll be honest, I cannot say with 100% certainty just what it will look like. But judging from Jesus' ministry and example, it will involve grace. It doesn't make sense. 
It will involve hospitality. It will involve radical welcome of those who are completely different than you and me. It will require us watching and waiting and working to build the beloved community. And this lesson from Matthew's gospel is one of the rare times where Jesus actually stops to explain himself if we just listen. And he tells us the moral of the story. Be ready. Be prepared. And it seems the preparations we are to make are the preparations of compassion and grace and welcome. And so as the Advent season begins, this is perhaps where we should start, centering ourselves, becoming fully present right here, right now, with what's happening right in front of us, not tomorrow, but today. And then hope demands that as we do this, we listen carefully to the urgency and with expectancy of what God will do next through those of us who have our Advent antennas up and are listening to the frequency of the divine. A couple of weeks ago, like many of you, I was watching some of the impeachment inquiry hearings, and what drew me to those long, interminable question and answer sessions at first was a testimony provided by one Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, a man who it seemed to me virtually oozed with integrity and credibility, a Purple Heart recipient, an Iraqi war veteran, serving at the White House, and he was testifying before the House Intelligence Committee. And as part of his, that testimony, here's what struck me. He said, in all my days, I never thought that I would be sitting here testifying in front of this committee and the American public about my actions. When I reported my concerns, my only thought was to act properly and to carry out my duty. That struck me. He simply did what he thought was his proper duty, and he was surprised to find himself testifying before a House Intelligence Committee and millions of television viewers. Now, I got to thinking about that, and I wonder if a man as well-educated and trained and as honorable and as credible as Lieutenant Colonel Vindman can be taken off guard by the sudden and surprising changes of life. Are any of us entirely safe from being surprised? whether it be a good surprise or a bad surprise? Let me just remind us, here's the thing about Advent hope. It's not safe. It's not sentimental. It's not the dreamy kind of pie-in-the-sky hope. Advent hope is grounded in preparation and expectation. Advent hope is built one day, one moment at a time by those who can walk and chew gum at the same time. In other words, the kind of hope we're talking about is built uh, today, today is, is not by separating ourselves from our regular daily mundane responsibilities. Jesus, in other words, isn't calling us to quit our jobs, to withdraw from society, and to move to a commune where we create our own alternate universe. Advent hope means we do what needs to be done, Advent hope means being faithful with what we've already been entrusted with. Advent hope for you might mean being fully present to your child as a parent. 
Advent hope for you might mean being fully present to your spouse or to that someone special in your life. Advent hope for you might mean being fully present to your church family and stepping up to serve or give of yourself in some capacity so that the beloved community is realized more fully. Advent hope for you might mean mending fences when you leave this place and picking up the telephone and calling and making it right with somebody. Advent hope is just doing the next faithful thing. It's taking the next right step in your normal everyday routine, but it's more, listen, the wonder of God's hope is doing the next right thing all the while at the same time. Remember the walking and chewing gum analogy? While we're doing the next right thing, we're paying attention to how my next right thing connects to your next right thing and her next right thing and his next right thing and their next right thing. Hope doesn't just happen, you see. Hope Real hope, divine hope, is built by people who are willing to keep doing the next right thing while watching and paying attention to the trends, to the connecting points of all of this activity. And hope, my friends, is where each of our faithful activity leads us towards a vision, collectively and individually, of wholeness, of healing, of peace, and justice for all. Hope is built, my friends, and it's not built by one person. It's built in the context of community. Hope takes a village. Hope requires hard work. Hope requires walking and chewing gum at the same time. But we can do it. We can do it, for we have the Holy Spirit within us. And it's a never-ending process. As Emily Dickinson put it, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. So in the name of the one who calls us to walk and chew gum at the same time, in the name of the one who calls us to whistle while we work, in the name of the one who calls us to live, that is to exist, and to build hope, amen.